people, hey, um, as we're kind of getting set here, let me just mention one other thing, if I can, that I'm really excited about before we dive into the message. Uh, since I've become the pastor of this church, it's been almost four years, which is crazy. Thank you, Zach. You're the man. Love you, buddy. He's not listening. Um, look, since I've become the pastor, became the pastor of this church four years ago, uh, one of my dreams has been to see this church become a church in this community that this community just can't live without. Like, I, I pray that if our church disappeared tomorrow, that this community would grieve our loss because of our love, our investment, our service. Um, and so this past summer, we took a step and, and we hired a new guy onto our team to help us become that church in greater ways. Matt Warren, he has just been knocking it out of the park since he walked through the door. Uh, just done a phenomenal job helping us to uh, take community care and community transformation to a completely new new level. So I'm excited today to share with you about what we're getting ready to do, all right? Uh, you may have noticed a setup outside when you walked in, a lot of tables out there. We have six brand new community partners in the house today. Partners that will allow us as a church to serve and invest in our community in really intentional ways. For example, uh, we have the opportunity now to feed hungry children in our community by filling up backpacks week in and week out with food. Uh, to mentor kids in both the Cartersville City and Bartow County school systems. These are kids who desperately need godly adults speaking into their lives both personally and academically. Uh, we've been given the opportunity to mentor parents whose kids have gone into the foster system. Unbelievable opportunity to know that there are parents right in our own backyard who desperately want and need help to change, to get their lives back on track so that they can get their kids back home. We as a church family have been given the opportunity to step into their lives and to help them uh, in, in knowing Jesus, following him, and becoming who God wants them to be. A couple of other things. We've been given the opportunity to foster children who've been abandoned, neglected, abused. These are kids who desperately need to experience what it's like to grow up in a loving home with a loving family. And then finally, uh, we have an opportunity to work alongside 11 other churches in our community to serve homeless children and their families in an effort to help them get back on their feet. Now, I believe that uh, we have to, as a church, take hold of these critical opportunities right now for two big reasons. One, because Jesus tells us to. Right? When you pick up this book and you read it, you find evidence of that from cover to cover. God tells us to care for the lost, the broken, the hurting, the poor, the orphaned, the widowed, those who desperately need hope and need help. And so part of this is just us walking in obedience. The second reason we need to take hold of these opportunities is this, because our mission as a church demands it. I mean, think about this with me. How can we, as Cross Point City Church, say that we exist to relentlessly pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus and do nothing while kids in our community go hungry? How can we say that, that we're that church while, while there are parents in our community who desperately need and want help to change, to get their kids back home, and we do nothing to meet that, that problem, that, that issue? Um, what about this? How, how can we be that church and, and let orphan kids walk through life without knowing what a family is? How can we let kids who want a mentor walk through life alone? And, and how can we be those people that, that allow homeless children and parents to sleep on the streets while doing nothing to, to help them get back on their feet? 
Look, I'm convinced we can't be those people who know the needs that exist in our own backyard and then simply sit on our hands and do nothing, right? So here's the call to action today. I want you, after this gathering, to go outside and to meet our partners. Uh, get information, ask questions, learn more about what they do. And then I want you to go home later today and I want you to get on your Crosspoint City Church app or, or you can log online to crosspointcity.com forward slash community care. You will find all six of these opportunities listed on our page with a whole lot more information than I just gave you. And you can actually at the bottom of that page sign up to be a part of what we want to do on behalf of our community, all right? So, so sign up. We'll get back in touch with you with more information ASAP, get you connected, and get you involved, okay? Let, let's be the church that says to this community, we do more than just talk a big game. Um, we live out what we say we're about, right? We're, we're going to step up to the plate, and we're going to pursue people with the hope and love of Jesus like we say we are, okay? If you have questions, let us know. We'll meet you outside, and we'll do our best to answer them, okay? Well, let's do this. If you have a Bible or if you have a device with an app on it, grab those things. Go to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, today we are closing out our Vintage Faith series uh, that we've been in the last several weeks. If you've missed it, you can find it online at crosspointcity.com. But we're closing it out today by talking about faith in Jesus. And we have got a lot to cover in a very short amount of time so for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and dive right into the text, all right? Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're just going to read a little, talk a little, okay? Here's what the writer says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, let's stop and talk, all right? I've taught you this before, but anytime you see a therefore in the scriptures, always remember that it's there for a reason. What you want to do when you see this word is, is back up and read what appears before therefore because what appears before therefore always informs what appears after therefore. Are you with me? And so look, what appears before this therefore? Well, all the vintage faith stories that we've been talking about in Hebrews 11 the last several weeks, right? Stories of men and women walking in faith in the face of uncertainty, waiting, fear, suffering, and even death. The writer's telling us, since we're surrounded uh, by, by so great a cloud of, of men and women, men and women of faith, men and women he calls witnesses, and this word witnesses doesn't necessarily mean that these great men and women, these heroes are in heaven watching us live our lives. The idea instead is, is this, that their lives and even their deaths in many ways serve as witness to us of what true biblical faith in action looks like. So since you and I are surrounded by these great heroes of the faith who have gone on before us, there are a few things we should do. Keep reading. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So first, the writer tells us we should lay aside every weight. Uh, this language that the writer uses in this verse is the same language that would have been used during this period of time to describe a runner or an athlete. So if you're a runner, you'll get this imagery, okay? Oftentimes, runners, they would put on weights while they were training, ankle weights, weights around their body, and they would run with weights strapped on in order to get stronger and faster. But when race day would come, what would they do? Well, they'd take the weights off, they would lay them aside so that they could run quickly and run freely. This is the picture. So with that picture in your mind, let me ask you this question. In a spiritual sense, what is that thing or those things that are weighing you down. Like in other words, uh, what's that thing in your life that may not fall into the sin category, 
but you know it's slowing your spiritual progress. For some of us, it might be things like busyness, uh, social media, too much TV, lack of discipline in some area of our lives. Like Again, what is that thing for you? That thing that, that may not be sin, but it's slowing you and distracting you from following Jesus with everything you've got. The writer says, well, you should lay it aside. Next, secondly, he says, lay aside the sin which clings so closely. What is that sin for you? That sin in your life that clings closely. You know that sin that you swear, I'll never do it again, I'll never do it again, I'll never do it again, and you do it again? What is that one? The one that you just can't seem to pray away. I would guess every one of us in the room, we have an answer to that question. I know I have an answer to that question. What's that sin in your life that just doesn't seem to want to let you go? Well, the writer says again that you should lay it aside. And, and why? We'll keep reading and we find the, the importance of doing this. He goes on, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why do we lay aside our weights? Why do we lay aside our sin? So that we can run the race of, of faith with endurance, without giving up. That's what that word means, that is before us. Now, I want you to think back with me on where we've been in this series. If you're new to this church, maybe this is your first time, I'm going to catch you up, all right? But, but think with me if you've been here over the past several weeks. Think about what we've learned and let me make sense of this statement for you, all right? Here's all the writer's saying. That you and I should throw off those things that are weighing us down. We should lay aside that sin that, that clings so closely so that, like Noah, we can walk in faithful obedience to God, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, without giving up. That you and I, like Abraham, that, that we might walk through seasons of waiting, of unfamiliarity in faith without giving up. That like Moses, uh, we might confront our fears in faith with the promises of God without giving up. And as we learned last week, like those who were sawn in two, who were stoned to death, killed by the sword, that we might walk through times of suffering and hardship in faith without giving up. This language that we see in these verses, it's reminiscent of Paul's language in 2 Timothy 2.4. He's at the very end of his life and he writes to Timothy, his protege. He says, Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. All he was saying to Timothy was this, Timothy, um, I've come to the end of my life and I have to tell you, I've finished well. I've finished well. Regardless of circumstances, uh, regardless of how good or bad life was for me along the way, I endured. I never gave up. I never threw in the towel. I kept running. I kept pursuing Jesus. And I kept my confidence in the character and promises of God. Church, can I just remind us today, that should be all of our goals as followers of Jesus Christ. The goal of our life should be this, to come to the end of life and to be able to look back and say, I finished well. I lived for what mattered. I, I lived for what truly counted regardless of, of how good or bad life may have been at any given time. I didn't give up. I didn't throw in the towel on my faith. I didn't leave Jesus behind. I endured. I kept pursuing him, and I remained confident in the character and promises of God. Now, look, can we just be honest for a moment? At times, that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? If you're anything like me, you've walked through seasons of life when it feels really hard to throw off those things that are weighing you down, to throw off that sin that clings closely, and to run your race of faith with endurance without giving up. It's, it's hard at times. So how in the world do we accomplish it? How do we pull it off? 
We'll keep reading and we find the answer. Look at this. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So don't miss it. Look, if you're taking notes, this is something you want to write down. The key to walking in enduring faith is this. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. That's what we're here to do today, right? We're here to worship, to celebrate Jesus, to look to him. Um, the reason that we call you to do things like get in a group and serve others and, and read your Bible and pray, it's for a greater reason than you simply being able to check those things off the religious checklist, right? I went to church, read my Bible, I prayed today, I served somebody, sweet. We want you to do those things because those are the ways that you look to Jesus. We're supposed to look to him if we want to endure through life, keeping our faith, refusing to give up. We look to him, Jesus, who is, as the writer tells us, the founder of our faith. Meaning that if you take Jesus out of Christianity, there is no Christianity. You get that. You take Jesus out of Christianity, Christianity becomes nothing more than another dead, lifeless religion. We look to Jesus, he's, he's our founder, he's the one who, who came to this world, God in the flesh, Savior, to rescue us from sin, death, and hell. Without him, our faith is pointless, it's meaningless. But not only is Jesus the founder of our faith, he's the perfecter of our faith. Some of your Bibles might use the word finisher there. Theologically speaking, you and I, we're living in a time period right now known as the already not yet. Meaning that Jesus, he has already paid for and secured our salvation. But you and I, we haven't yet fully realized our salvation. We're living in the middle of these two extremes. Our faith, look, our faith has been founded, hasn't been perfected just yet. But here's what we can be confident of. Look, because Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, all that we're believing him for, it, it will come to pass. You know that, right? Like there's coming a day when Jesus, he's going to make us perfect. He's going to usher us into his eternal kingdom. His kingdom is going to show up on the earth. Every wrong will be righted. Sin and death will be no more. Satan will be defeated. And he will finish the good work that he's began in us. Church, the key to walking in enduring faith is looking to Jesus, the author, the, the founder, the perfecter. Fixing your sights on him. You know that Jesus isn't supposed to be at the top of some priority list, right? Are you with me? Jesus isn't number one on the priority list. He should be the center of your life, infiltrating every aspect of who you are and what you do. And when you look to Jesus, according to what we're getting ready to read, there are some things that you should look to and remember in order to endure in faith. Keep reading with me. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? Have you ever wanted something so badly that you were willing to do almost anything to get it. Like you knew that having that thing, uh, attaining that thing, it would bring you so much joy that you were willing to put almost everything on the line to make that thing yours. You ever been there before? Can I just tell you when Jesus was here on the earth, uh, that that was him? Jesus had some things that, that he wanted badly. There were some things that, that he strived to attain, things that he knew would bring him unending and unshakable joy, things that he was willing to do anything to get. And when you read the Bible, you find out what those things were. Uh, the Bible tells us one was glorifying God as Father. Like Jesus knew, he, he knew that there was no greater joy in life to be found 
than, than the joy that comes from walking in faithful obedience to God each day that God might be honored, glorified, magnified, made known to the ends of the earth. A second was this eternal reward. Like Jesus knew that in death he would be resurrected to new life, reunited with God the Father in his heavenly kingdom, and ultimately he would be exalted by him. And the third thing was this, and this is crazy to me, is us. Us. Do you know that when Jesus was here on the earth, he took great joy in knowing that through his life, his death, and resurrection, he had the opportunity to buy us back to God. He took joy in knowing that, that he had been given the opportunity to make a way for you and I as sinful people to know God as loved sons and daughters. He took joy in knowing that he would have the opportunity ultimately to present you and I to God, his Father, our Father, as holy, blameless, sinless people. Look, it was for that joy that Jesus endured the cross. As we talk about enduring faith today, how to endure, look, I truly believe that we need to understand all that Jesus endured at the cross on our behalf. If we're going to finish well, if we're going to live for what matters, and we're truly going to look to Jesus, we need to know what he suffered on our behalf. And so I, I want to take a few minutes, if I can, and just talk in detail about what Jesus endured for you and me. Look, we know from the Bible that on the night before Jesus was crucified, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying. The book of Luke tells us, and Luke was a doctor, by the way, so uh, he had the knowledge to write this. The book of Luke tells us that Jesus, as he thought about what was coming for him the very next day at the cross, that he was under so much stress that he was literally sweating drops of blood. It's a real condition called hematidrosis. It's when a person's body is under so much stress that blood starts to seep through their sweat glands. And as Jesus is praying, sorrowful to the point of death, the Bible says, a group of Roman soldiers enters the garden led by one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, the betrayer, and they arrest him. Well, they take him to the house of the high priest during that day. And when they get there, they decide to have some fun with Jesus. So they blindfold him. They take turns spitting upon him, mocking him, punching him in the face. They say to Jesus, prophesy, prophesy, tell us who hit you. And after this is over, they finally bring a battered, bruised, beaten Jesus in before the high priest and the religious leaders of his day to stand trial. And these men, these religious men, proceed to make up false charges against Jesus in hopes of having him put to death. And based on these charges, they send him to a Roman governor. His name was Pilate. He was overseeing Jerusalem during this time. They sent him to Pilate because Roman officials were the only ones who could hand down death sentences during this time and in the history of uh, the nation of Israel. Well, Pilate, he hears the case against Jesus and declares him not guilty. And so he sends him to another Roman official named Herod. He finds him not guilty. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate is ready to let Jesus go. But the religious leaders are so adamant that Jesus died. That Pilate finally, he washes his hands of Jesus. And he turns him back over to the soldiers for a process known as scourging. A brutal, hellish, torturous process. Jesus, he would have been stripped completely naked. His arms would have been tied around a wooden post, stretching out his body from, from head to toe. And these soldiers would have proceeded to beat Jesus within an inch of his life with an instrument called a cat of nine tails. Imagine a whip with nine leather straps embedded in each strap are sharp pieces of rock, metal, and bone. 
And each time they would have struck the body of Jesus, they would have literally torn chunks of flesh off of him, down to his bones and internal organs. Many times criminals didn't even make it through this process. They never made it to the cross. They would die right there as they were being beaten. But Jesus, he made it. The Bible tells us that after the scourging process, they put Jesus' clothes back on him. They take him to what's called the Praetorium. Anywhere from 200 to 600 Roman soldiers would have been there. They stripped Jesus of his own clothes once again. They put a purple robe on his back, a crown of thorns on his head. These thorns were about two to three inches long, and they were used by the Jewish people during this day as sewing needles. They put a reed in his hand, and they took turns mocking him for claiming to be king of the Jews. At the end of this mocking session, the Bible tells us that that they put Jesus' own clothes back on him and they strapped part of his cross to his shoulders and his arms. This cross beam, Jesus would have been forced to carry to the place where he was crucified. It would have weighed anywhere between 75 and 125 pounds. We know from the Bible that Jesus was so so tired, so so, um, weak after all these beatings and scourgings that he couldn't carry his cross all the way. A man named Simon was forced to carry it for him. But when they got to the place where he would be crucified, this place called Golgotha, Jesus was stripped completely naked once again. And this was done for the sake of humiliating and shaming him. That was what crucifixion was all about. Prisoners were crucified as a means of shame and humiliation. Criminals were were crucified on the side of a road, completely naked, covered in their own sweat, feces, blood, and urine at eye level of those passing by so that the mocking and humiliation could continue as long as they were alive. Romans called people who were crucified people condemned to the death of a beast. In other words, Jesus was treated as inhumane through this entire process. As he got to the cross and Uh, The place where he'd be crucified, he's stripped naked, and and the Roman soldiers lay him across his cross, and they would have taken two nails, nine inches long each, and driven each through both of his wrists, in between where the radius and the ulna bones meet, so that his body weight would have been supported. Finally, they would have stacked his feet, one on top of the other, and put one single nail through both into the upright beam of the cross. Isaiah 52, 14 tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, after all the beatings and all the scourgings, that he was so disfigured, he, looked, he didn't look like a human being any longer. Well, I don't know what that does to you when you hear that. I'll tell you, for, for me, uh, it stirs some things up in me. But here's what we have to know. As horrific as these physical sufferings were, that wasn't the worst part of the cross for Jesus. What Jesus experienced spiritually at the cross far outweighed what he experienced physically. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 with me. It says this, that for our sake, God, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as Jesus hung there on the cross, beaten, battered, bruised, bloodied, weak, suffering, dying, the Bible says that God made him into our sin. I've told you this before, but the God of the universe, he's holy, he is just, he is righteous. Wherever he finds sin, he has to punish it. He can't let sin go. He can't look past it. If he did that, he would no longer be the God that we know. And so out of his great love for us, Jesus assumed our sin at the cross that God might punish him 
in our place. Look, let's make this practical if we can. Um, go back to that sin in your life, that sin that clings so closely. What is it? What's that sin that you struggle with, that sin that you have struggled with? Again, at the cross, look, Jesus became that sin. He became your pride. He became your arrogance. He became your anger issues. Jesus became your racism, your lust, your adultery, your substance abuse, your pornography addiction. He became the way that you treat your family, you treat your neighbor. He became those things. So when God looked at Jesus hanging on the cross, no longer did he see his perfect sinless son. He saw Jesus the adulterer. He saw Jesus the, the greedy man. Jesus the one who struggles with anger. Jesus the one who, who struggles with lust. Jesus the racist. He saw Jesus covered in your sin. And Mark 15 tells us that in that moment, God couldn't bear the sight of his son any longer. And he abandoned Jesus at the cross. He left him. He broke his fellowship with his son for the first time in eternity. And as Jesus hung on that cross, God poured out every bit of punishment, wrath, and anger that our sin deserved onto Jesus. And he did it to Jesus so that he'd never have to do it to us. It's unbelievable to know that this is what Jesus endured for you and I, but that's not where it stops. Look, Paul goes on and he says that, that Jesus, he suffered in our place for our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know that in order for God to love and accept you, you don't just need your sins to be forgiven? You need to be made righteous. You need God to see you as a sinless, holy, blameless person. And that's a problem, isn't it? Because none of us are those things. But here's the beauty of the cross. For those of us who know Jesus, as he hung there being punished by God, this supernatural transaction took place. This great exchange, as Martin Luther calls it. Jesus got every single bit of our sin, past, present, and future. And those of us who knew Jesus, who, who would know Jesus one day, we inherited every single bit of his righteousness and perfection, allowing God the Father to see us as blameless, holy, righteous people, even though we aren't those things. Unbelievable what Christ has done on our behalf. Look, here's what that means on a practical level. I want you to really get this, all right? And what I'm about to say, look, it's hard to believe. It's hard to understand. You need to choose to believe it anyway. All right, here's what it means. Because of what Jesus endured for us at the cross, it means that God loves and accepts you on your worst day the same as he does on your best day. So imagine this. Look, tomorrow uh, you could wake up for work two hours late, be angry, be mad, yell at your wife and kids, kick the dog on your way out the door, flip a guy off in traffic as you're driving, get to work, take out all your frustration on your coworkers, get very little done, uh, come home, miss dinner, watch Monday Night Football, curse at the refs, then go to bed without reading your Bible or praying, right? And then you could get up on Tuesday two hours early for an intense session of prayer and Bible reading, pray for each of your kids by name before you leave, serve your wife before walking out the door, help the old lady broken down on the side of the road on your way to work, change her tire. You can get to work, uh, do your job and other people's, serve every coworker, stop by the Christian chicken, Chick-fil-A on the way home from work, it's gotta be that, buy the homeless guy a meal for dinner and then lead your next door neighbor to Jesus. And look at me. God loves you the same on Tuesday as he does on Monday. I want you to understand, look, God's acceptance of you, his love for you, does not depend on you or your performance. 
And that should never cause us to take advantage of the grace and love of God. It should cause us to love and obey God all the more. But his love and acceptance for you doesn't depend on you. It depends on what Jesus has done for you. Because of what Jesus endured on your behalf, you are totally and fully loved, accepted by God, and nothing will ever change that. Church, please, look, don't miss this. If you want to walk in enduring faith, you look to Jesus, and you remember what he endured, and you remember what he accomplished. There's one other thing to remember as you look to him. And it's this, that Jesus, this is verse 2, the end, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You remember, church, that Jesus is alive. He's alive, and, and he's at God's right hand. This reality should remind us of some things. One, that Jesus, in resurrecting from the dead, accomplished everything he said he came to earth to do. In resurrecting from the dead, Jesus defeated sin, death, and hell on our behalf once and for all. He's freed us from those things into new and eternal life. It should also remind us that Jesus, he is sovereign. He's in control of all things. Do you know that there's nothing in your life or in creation that lies outside of his power and control? Thirdly, this reminds us that Jesus is king. That he is actively ruling and reigning over the universe, working to bring people into his kingdom and his kingdom to earth through us as his people. And lastly, I love this, this should remind us that his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming. Look, I touched on this briefly earlier, but again, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to leave this throne in heaven and he's going to invade earth with a hundred million angels by his side. And he's going to set up a new throne here. And he's going to restore all of life and all of creation. Those who have died before that second coming will be raised to new life in Christ. Brand new resurrected bodies. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. Everything will be righted. And you and I will experience life in the way King Jesus meant it to be. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible speaks to this day. It's Romans 21. Verses 1 through 4, look, then I saw a new heaven. This is John, one of the disciples of Jesus speaking. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Church, when you and I look to Jesus, and we remember what he's accomplished, what he's endured, when we remember that he's alive, that he is reigning as king, that he is sovereign, and that his kingdom is coming, Here's what happens. Let me show you this. Your freedom and your future come into focus. That's what happens. Your freedom and your future come into focus. When your eyes and your heart and your mind are fixed on Jesus, you remember those things that are weighing me down and slowing me down and, and preventing me from following Jesus. They don't have to weigh me down. Jesus has freed me from those things. They don't need to dictate my joy, my quality of life, my direction. They don't need to define me. I can throw them off because of what Jesus has done. This sin in my life that, that clings so closely, even when I feel powerless, I still have power over it. Jesus died and rose from the dead to free me from the power of sin. 
And not only that, he put his Holy Spirit inside of me so that I can have the power to say no to sin every single day of my life. You do know you don't get out of bed and put sin to death by managing it, right? Overcoming sin is not about you getting out of bed every day and working hard to not sin. It's about you walking with the Holy Spirit and setting your eyes on Jesus and Jesus becoming more attractive to you than that sin in your life and through the power of the Holy Spirit saying to that sin, I don't have to say yes to you. You remember as you look out at your future, something better's coming. Something better's coming. This life, it's all right at times. At times it's really hard. But I know there's a day where I'm finally going to be free from pain, from struggle, from hardship, from sin, from death. That day is coming for me. Church, don't miss it. When you're fixed on those things, that's when you're able to endure. When you're looking at Jesus and remembering all that is yours because of him, that's when you can look around regardless of circumstances and say, I will not give up. I will not stop running. I will not throw in the towel on my faith. I will endure and I will remain confident in the character and the promises of God. This is what the writer reiterates for us in verse 3. Look at this and we're about to wrap up. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. It's unbelievable. Jesus was condemned by sinners for sinners. Isn't that unreal? And he was condemned for us so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I'm going to run, I'm going to run, I'm going to run. I'm not going to give up. Church, if you're taking notes, would you write this down, please? Listen, as long as your sights are fixed on Jesus, you give your faith no option to fail. Let me just say it again. As long as your sights are fixed on Jesus, you give your faith no option to fail. As I was writing this message this past week, I happened to come across the story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water in Matthew 14. And in that story, we find the disciples of Jesus, they're out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm that's being tossed around. And somewhere in the middle of the night, it's believed between about 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus decides to take a leisurely stroll on the water out to the boat where his disciples are waiting, right? And uh, we can just imagine, we've never seen a guy walking on water in the middle of the night. That's creepy. That's weird. So these guys, they freak out. They lose their minds. They're, they're scared, rightfully so. Well, Jesus speaks and he says, guys, look, it's, it's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter, I love Peter. He's insane. He's bold. He's courageous. He wants to do what Jesus is doing. And so he says to Jesus, if it's really you, command me to get out of the boat and come to you. And so Jesus says, all right, Peter, come on, man. Oh, but Jesus, or I'm sorry, Peter, he gets out of the boat. The only disciple that gets out of the boat. And I can just imagine, he's walking across the water, right? And verse 30 tells us that at one point, Peter, he gets distracted. He starts looking around at the wind. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. And before he knows it, he's drowning. Look, this story gives us a great picture of what happens in our lives when we take our eyes off of Jesus. We sink. Some of us know what that's like, right? Some of us are in that place today. We take our eyes off of Jesus and we sink deeper into those things that are weighing us down. We sink deeper into that sin which clings so closely and we start drowning spiritually. It's like we can't do enough to keep our head above water. Can I just tell you, in those seasons and moments of life, we all have to make a decision, which is this. Will we drown? Will we give up? Will we say to Jesus, I'm done. I don't want to endure any longer. I'm going to throw in the towel on my faith. 
I'm going to do this alone. I'm going to suck the water of, of weight and sin down into my life. And I'm just going to drown here. Or will we, like Peter, in faith, look to Jesus and reach out to him in desperation for the rescue we need? Church, in closing, here's what I want to remind you of. Jesus has never given up on you. Never, nor will he. And I know the enemy, he wants to convince us otherwise. Look at what you're going through. Look at what you're facing. Look at what you're struggling. Where's Jesus? He's on top of the water. That's where he is. He's waiting for us to reach out so that he can pull us out of that place of drowning and flailing. That's where he is. He's waiting on us. He's never given up on us, nor will he. So here's the goal of our lives. This has to be it. We keep our eyes on Jesus, and we don't dare give up on him. I want to invite us to bow our heads and close our eyes all around the room. And I just want us to lock our attention onto Jesus in the next few moments. God, we need you. God, we want to encounter you. We want to experience your presence. God, we want to feel your touch. We want to hear your voice, God. Would you make yourself real to us today? God, I believe that there are people sitting in this room right now who feel like they are drowning. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. God, would you just reveal to them today that, that Jesus is waiting on them to just reach out, to look to him, to remain confident in him, to believe in and the promises that you've made to us through him. God, give people in this room today faith and courage to reach out. God, would you restore, redeem, heal, bind up wounds. God, draw close to the brokenhearted. Whatever needs to happen in this place today, I pray that it would happen in the next few moments. Listen, if you're a person that walked into the room today having never trusted Jesus, like maybe you came today and and this whole church thing, it's new for you? Or maybe you're the person that, you know, you've done church for a long time, but that's all you've done. You've just done church. You've never made a decision to start following Jesus, to put your faith in Him as a Savior. Maybe you're struggling with, with purpose and meaning, and you're wondering, man, is, is there more to life than what I'm living for? You're getting out of bed each day, and, and you're struggling with hope. You have no idea what eternity looks like for you. Can I just tell you that all that can be resolved today by saying yes to Jesus. Look, if you're that person in this room who is ready to hand control of your life over to the God who created you, the God who, who wants a new and better way of life for you, if you're ready today to, to know a life that's not only good for you, but that's honoring to God, a, a life that that will usher you into the kingdom of God, both now and in eternity. I want to help you say yes to Jesus. Look in your seat right now in the quietness of your heart. I just want to help you pray. I say this all the time. Prayer doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. But I just want to help you right now to make a declaration to God of who you believe Jesus to be and what you need him to do in your life. So, so in prayer, why don't you just say something like this to God. God, I know I'm a sinful person. And God, I know that my sin is keeping me from you and the life you have for me. 
But God, I believe that you love me. And I've heard today what Jesus endured for me. And if Jesus endured that for me, I want to give him my life. I want to say yes to him as, as my Savior. I want to follow him. I want to live the life that, that he wants me to live. I want hope. I want purpose. I want my life to mean something, God. And I, I want to know that after my life is done here, that I'll spend the rest of eternity with you. So, God, I say yes to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I believe in his death. I believe in his resurrection. God, save me today. Save me today and make me a new person. Listen, if, if you just prayed that prayer with me or, or something like it, I want to ask you to do me a favor. Um, I'm not going to call you out or put you on the spot or do anything weird, but... Um, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I do just want to ask you if you'd look up at me. Look, if you just prayed with me and you said yes to Jesus for the first time, would you just look up at me? For, for those that are looking up at me right now, listen, in just a moment, I want to ask you to take a simple step, all right? It's going to be a simple step. When we stand up to sing in just a moment, instead of sitting in your seat, would you do me this favor? I have a gift I want to put in your hand. It's a gift, a resource that's gonna help you to understand what you do from here. Like saying yes to Jesus, it's just the first step. We wanna help you follow Jesus. And so we've got these booklets, I said yes to Jesus. They're gonna help you know what steps to take. When we stand to sing, would you, instead of staying in your seats, would you exit your seat and walk right out to the lobby, the lobby where you came in. We're gonna have an amazing team of people out there to meet you. All they wanna do is celebrate with you about what God's done in your life and put this resource in your hand, all right? So I'm gonna pray for you, pray for your faith, pray for your courage, and then we're gonna stand and I want you to move. God, uh, thank you for these people that were just looking at me, people that said yes to Jesus. God, give them the courage they need to take a step in just a moment and to walk out the doors, to let somebody know what they've done. God, and let us celebrate today that you are a God who brings dead things back to life, who restores broken things, makes beautiful things that that God need to be made beautiful. God, thank you for doing that in the lives of people in this gathering. God, give them what they need to take this step. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.